All right. Welcome, everybody, to another version of Congress Two Beers In, um, given to you here by our folks at GAI. We are today, you're going to have me, Mark Harkins, along with my colleague, Matt Glassman. How are you doing? And we are very pleased to invite in a guest um, who we've not had before, uh, Caitlin Emma from Politico, who does appropriations and budget reporting. Um, she's been at Politico for about a half, eight years, she said, I think, and uh, a couple of years on this particular beat and did some education reporting for a few years before that. So she's been covering things here in Washington for more than a dozen years. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say uh, nothing has looked quite as crazy as the, the last few months for you. Yeah, nothing no, going on. <laughs> nothing going on. It's been, <laughs> yeah, it's totally been a wild ride. Really the last two years have been a wild ride um, because I started this beat uh, at the onset of the longest government shutdown in history. And since then, it's just been like one thing after another. I mean, if it's not, you know, disaster aid or border wall funding issues or the debt ceiling or a budget deal, then the pandemic hit and it's been pandemic relief package after relief package and covering those negotiations. And obviously that brings us to where we are now. So we're on, uh, I think this is the fifth COVID relief package that Congress has passed since this whole thing began. Yeah, there was a there was a moment, a long moment in the 116th Congress where it looked like it was going to just be a do-nothing Congress, right? Start with a shutdown, impeach the president, and pass no laws, just rename some post offices. And then it turned into just an absolute, you know, fis fiscal explosion um, with the COVID bills. And that's carried over now, where we seem to be in this period where we're not anything sort of what anyone would call normal in the budget and approach world. And that's relative to even the 115th Congress or 114th Congress, which a lot of people would have said was sort of off the rails in terms of regular order or whatnot. But now we just seem to be completely in a different sort of time zone, even thinking about budgeting and appropriations on the Hill. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a big, I mean, obviously like what, after March last year, there was like eight months where nothing happened. And it was just like a total stalemate in Congress on the next package. Then right before Christmas, we had both an appropriations and pandemic aid deal. And, you know, that was a bipartisan deal. So obviously Democrats are, are doing what they can, you know, through reconciliation. So this was my first time covering budget reconciliation. And um, I just, I found it really interesting that this is technically what qualifies as top speed for Congress, but you know, it's been anything, it, it has felt like anything, but it's also a pretty painful self-inflicted process for Democrats to put themselves through, but you know, it's a big bill, $1.9 trillion. So yeah, and I mean, it's, it's probably going to get signed into law by the end of the week, maybe even by Thursday, when, when Biden addresses the nation on all the issues that are going on here. Um, yeah. What do you think are some of the more interesting components of that bill that, that, that you've been tracking? Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, since this whole reconciliation process has been new to me, um, this is also the first time I've sort of gone through you know, watching what happens with the Senate parliamentarian and, um, you know, how that person is basically like akin to God <laughs> in the Senate at this point, um, you know, just watching really closely what passes muster and what doesn't, you know, watching the minimum wage issue was really um, fascinating to see where she would come down on that and just how, you know, Democrats were, were really trying to, uh, sort of declare victory early on, on that issue. I mean, like Senator, Bernie Sanders' office would, for days was sort of pointing at and hinting to uh, congressional budget office analysis that was going to, you know, show that everything was going to be okay, uh, that they were probably going to have a favorable favorable ruling. Like clearly, that wasn't the case. So that was just a really interesting process to watch. But you know, more broadly, some of the things that Democrats are trying to do here in terms of um, expansion of the child tax credit. Uh, is interesting and, and the Associated Press actually has a good story out today about how that kind of sets up, you know, possibly like a child poverty cliff uh, when that ends. But another element that's been also um, kind of fascinating to watch is how, you know, this, this bill obviously originated in the House and it's undergone some, you know, narrowing and, and trimming in the Senate because there's just so much impetus among like centrist Democrats to, to rein some of this in. And there's such a small, you know, um, 
sort of faction of the caucus, but you know, obviously Democrats can't lose afford to lose one vote at all in the Senate. So you really have to um, capitulate to folks like Joe Manchin and uh, you know Kristen Cinema when it comes to like narrowing the income eligibility threshold for stimulus checks or dialing right. back or you know shrinking the the weekly unemployment benefits payment and extending it a couple weeks. So just sort of the changes were, were really interesting to watch as it went from House to Senate. And the more that they squeeze on that side, doesn't that cause more of an issue coming back to the House? I mean, it's not like Nancy Pelosi's got a huge majority to work with either. I mean, progressives over in the House haven't been making noises so far that they're going to vote against this bill. But you could see a world where enough changes were made in the Senate that this would be hard to find the majority back in the House. Yeah, it, it, it definitely last week seemed like, you know, there could be a potential problem on that front, um, especially when, what was it? I think it was um, the day before Votorama when it, it was after Ron Johnson forced a bill reading on the floor for however many hours and before Votorama where Democrats were just like in this stalemate, you know, with Joe Manchin for hours and hours and hours because he wasn't um, pleased with the prior deal that they'd reached on unemployment benefits. And, and I think like Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman tweeted something like, what are we, you know, paraphrasing, like, what are we doing? Why are we shrinking um, eligibility for checks? Why are we lowering weekly unemployment benefits? You know, for the party in power, like what's the point? What are, what are we doing here? But so far, I mean, it sounds like Nancy Pelosi doesn't have a problem on her hands when it comes to passing this in the House. Um, but certainly, of course, progressives wanted to see a bigger package, you know? I feel like I feel like there was a big debate coming into this about whether Manchin really had a lot of power over this or not, right? It's been pretty clear that he's always wanted to get the yes on this COVID package. And so it wasn't going to be a situation where he was actually going to abandon them on the fundamental package. Um, but then there seemed to be this debate about whether he was going to be able to drive a hard bargain or if he was really just going to fall in line and they were going to give him some sort of like fig leaves to sort of show off that he was being tough. And I kind of think he drove a hard bargain and got what he wanted. Um, and I think that was surprising to some people. But I, I, I agree. I think the progressives in the House are, are just basically looking at the same old story where like they're just going to have to eat the Senate compromise because they don't have any other alternatives. And it's a popular bill. And so they're just going to go for it. And with a narrow majority, they're not even going to be allowed allowed right they're not even going to have the opportunity to vote no sort of out of uh leftist objections like sometimes they could do in the house there's just not enough of them and they're going to lose fudge soon and uh hailing to go with it right so the majority is going way down in the house um to where they're going to have to have all of these people sort of sign on to eating this uh because they're not getting republican votes right i mean yeah. it, it's like you don't really have a choice you know what i mean um yeah. it's interesting what senator manchin was pushing for last week. Um, my colleagues had a, a, my colleagues who cover the Senate more broadly had a story, um, you know, just talking to some folks close to him, like even like Capito, uh, you know, his Republican counterpart in West Virginia was kind of like, I don't know what he was doing. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't really know what he was put, like what the end goal was there because even like the governor of West Virginia has been pushing for like a bigger package. Um, you know, ultimately it, there's probably an argument to be made that you know, a, even at a lower weekly payment, right, from $400 to $300, uh, extending it a couple of weeks in addition to providing um, the, the new deal that they reached would provide a little over $10,000 in tax relief for laid off workers um, for households that make up to $150,000. So that's a new provision aimed at addressing, um, you know, concerns about laid off workers getting saddled with these big tax bills. So I think there's an argument to be made that ultimately like the final compromise is, is a good one. Um, but it was also sort of like a puzzling, like what yeah. exactly is just, is, is Senator Manchin like realizing like the limits of his power? Like, was he not consulted on this deal? Like what, he, I, it left his colleagues questioning sometimes. Right, right. Yeah, he, he obviously didn't go to the Lisa Murkowski school of, of how to negotiate these packages. I mean, if you, you weren't covering this beat back then, but in the, the tax bill, what, of 2017, the tax cut bill, she was able to get opening up ANWR into that uh, because they needed her vote to be able to get that through back then. And so she really took care of the, the folks back home. Manchin really didn't do anything to take care of the folks back in West Virginia, particularly. He was just more concerned with overarching things, which was right, which I thought 
Yeah, this doesn't have sort of like that name thing that Cornhuck, Cornhusker kickback or Louisiana right. purchase to pick up Nelson or Landrew and you know in back, decades past back on the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and but but and yet Manchin does seem sort of like that he is playing the pivotal vote in the Senate pretty clearly. I mean, he's he's, he's putting in action like he held up the vote for you know God knows how long. Um, and so it it doesn't appear to be in the named service of specific provisions for West Virginia, which is a change from how sort of these things have been traditionally bought up um, to, to get those votes to pass. I'm, I'm interested, too. I you know, one thing that happened is that, you know, as we sort of expanded the use of reconciliation to this, that and everything in the last four years, be it the tax cuts, the repealing the Affordable Care Act or even, you know, or what else you might want to do with it going forward, it does seem like that they've expanded the use of it. And at the same time, they've speeded up sort of the deliberation of it. Remember the argument in the 115th Congress about Obamacare repeal and the tax cuts is that we just, we just weren't, we weren't giving this a hearing, right? It wasn't getting its day in the committees. It was just kind of being pushed through. And obviously COVID relief is something that you're doing sort of on an emergency basis, but it's still sort of just going through these processes where you just have sort of like strong majority parties that know what they want to do. Uh, and don't want to sit around the House or the Senate sort of debating it in committee. They're just going to do it. Right. And you had that sort of initial short-lived moment from the White House where it was like, I don't know. I think we like want to try and get a bipartisan deal. I think we want to like try and see what we can figure out. Um, you know, whether that was like disingenuous now in retrospect, I'm not really sure because it was pretty clear like Democrats all along have realized, okay, we're going to have to use reconciliation to get this done. But um, I don't know, you know, it, it certainly raises a lot of questions, I think, for any future attempt at using reconciliation again. They, they have two bites of the apple here because they used the fiscal 21 budget resolution for this particular COVID relief package and they have fiscal 22 coming up. And I don't know, you know, certainly like having a huge progressive um, ask and a huge campaign promise like the $15 minimum wage by 2025 to have that sort of fall by the wayside with the parliamentarian when you like think and look forward at all the things they want to do in like the next package with infrastructure or climate change or jobs or whatever um there's a lot of like a lot of problems potential problems there a lot of things that might not make it past the bird rule a lot of things that like somebody like joe manchin who's now like you know the most powerful person ever and don't, like and don't, don't sleep like, on don't sleep on Kristen Cinema. right I you mean even if Manchin decides either. to be on board yeah Cinema's in, a, Cinema's in like a weird spot too because you know Manchin is uh obviously a conservative democrat but he is very much reflecting a liberal position among his constituencies right like you know Biden won 30 percent of the state Cinema, on the other hand is uh cutting sort of a uh fiscal conservatism paired with sort of a social liberalism in a place where you could just be a liberal as Mark Kelly is kind of showing uh, right now. And it's a much more sort of intriguing uh, positioning for her in my mind than Manchin's positioning, which makes sort of perfect sense on the structure of sort of uh, wh where he's representing. Um, and get, so get, I, I- Get back to me in two years on how well Mark Kelly does on that progressive thing when he's got to run. No, I mean, but it's, it's like there's, there's, there's an obvious alternative path in Arizona. I think one thing about the, the bird rule issue with the minimum wage is that like, they don't have the votes anyway. Um, in some ways, like the bird ruling sort of saved them like a really bitter vote um, to, to pull it out of there or not put it in or to fight with Manchin about it, but, but they, they don't have the votes on that. And so that's, you know, the reconciliation process isn't going to save you if you don't have 50 votes like you need a bare majority the rules aren't magic like there's no magic right. trick here um and i think a lot of progressives get frustrated by that because they want sort of you know they want the filibuster going on one end of the deal but then they also want to just be able to do whatever progressives in the house would want to do in the senate and they just don't have the votes on for a lot of this stuff um and so that may be as much as a pediment as much of an impediment as sort of like the procedural tools you're using um and uh you know, forget trying to get the 60 votes. They got to try and build a coalition of 50 for a lot of this stuff that if you go talk to anyone sort of left of the median in the House caucus, um, is just sort of like obvious that they should do, right? Um, I don't, you know, there's plenty of things there, right? You know, whatever Peter DeFazio wants, right? It doesn't even have 45 votes right now in the Senate, never mind 50, never mind 60. Right. And I think that that was pretty clear, like on the minimum wage vote, I think it was eight eight Democrats who voted against it. And cinema got all this um, flack for, I'm sure you saw like the clip sort of on Twitter when she voted, she kind of did like a little like 
like curtsy thing. I don't know, like Roots Action tweeted something like she looks too happy to be voting against like voting uh, in favor of poverty wages or something like that, where Mark Kelly voted in favor of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's clear that they don't have the support for something like the $15 minimum wage, let alone getting rid of the filibuster or overruling the parliamentarian. I mean, it's just a broader issue within the Democratic Party. And so I, I wonder about the appetite in terms of pursuing a big infrastructure package via reconciliation versus you know, the White House trying to get some kind of deal or something with Republicans again. Um, you know, I think that just this time around, reconciliation has just shown how many potential pitfalls there are, not just in terms of the bird rule, but finding support within your caucus for everything that, you know, you want to do. So let's transition a little bit from that um, into the executive branch and, and its ability, right? I mean, ostensibly the head of the Democratic Party right now is Joe Biden. I mean, if your president is of that party, that is the, the leader of that party. Um, and he is the person who is, is, is tasked with making these things happen. Um, he is hamstrung at the moment. And, and I think it, as big a story as this $1.9 trillion is for COVID relief, whatever, fine. I mean, I think the bigger story um, that has more effect on the budget overall is the fact that we don't have an OMB director. Um, normally, when you are trying to do your nominations, the first five or six are defense, Treasury, state, um, attorney general, which we don't have yet, although we may have it today, um, maybe now Homeland Security, and the director of the Office of Management and Budget. The OMB director is critical for the executive branch to be able to figure out, number one, what they believe should be moving forward. They're, they're the kind of referee between all the different groups. They are the, the mouthpiece for the president. But as importantly, they're the main negotiator on all this budget stuff with the Congress. Um, can you talk a little bit about where you think that has gone on and, and what's been going on with that? Right. Um, well, what we're seeing now with uh, Biden's nominee for deputy director, um, Shalanda Young, I think a lot of folks who are familiar with the House Appropriations Committee, um, you know, are familiar with Shalanda and you know, how much she, how much respect she has on Capitol Hill from both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, she has been on the committee for 14 years. She most recently served as a clerk and staff director. Um, she is somebody that everybody knows. She's been involved in, you know, every high every high stakes spending negotiation for the last few years. Uh, and as we've seen since Neera Tandon's nomination fell apart um you just have this massive i don't i don't even know if this has ever even really happened like before in congress but you have like this massive wave of support um from including like shelby right shelby came Sh out in favor shelby yeah pelosi hoyer clyburn rosa deloro you know all the appropriators on um the house Appropriators committee, all the Dem appropriators in the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, I think probably like any Republican appropriator that you ask would be like, "Yeah, well, she's great. Let's do it." You know what I mean? Everybody wants her to be director, and the White House is just like not not budging on it. You know, I think like the, the press secretary Jen Psaki said maybe last week something to the effect of, um, "Oh, well, when she's in the job, you know, we can nominate her as acting." Uh, while we pursue, you know, a nominee for, for director. So it's just really interesting The sort of like, it, some, it seems like, I, I don't know, the White House isn't exactly like jumping um, to listen to the Hill on this. So, but there's just so much support for Shalanda to be director. It just, it'll be really interesting to see what they do with that. And meanwhile, Shalanda's like heading through markups and stuff, um, you know, this week and probably will get a huge bipartisan vote whenever her nomination comes to the floor so i would assume early next week at the latest i mean there's no there's nobody really trying to hold her up uh, no. other than the general republicans who are against any biden nominee i was trying to describe this to my son um because my kids have the inevitable task of listening to me talk about these things and and what i said was you know one of the reasons why it seems to me that they're not elevating her right away is the director needs to have really good political sense 
and and because they're they're negotiating between all the different agencies, they're having to negotiate back and forth with the Hill. Whereas the deputy director is really the manager that makes everything run. Um, it's kind of like the the vice principal at a high school, right? They're they're the disciplinarians. The principal of the high school is the one who has to deal with all the crazy parents um, in the teachers union and whatever. Uh, and her role, uh, Shalana's role at, at appropriations has been to make everything run yep. and to make it all function. And you can absolutely see why the Biden White House wants that skill set in that position. And they may not be able to find another person with that skill set. But other than that, there's no good reason not to have her just be the OMB director right away. Right. I think that's a really good point. A really good point. And that was something I heard from, I did a story earlier this year on before, uh, it might've been when, yeah, no, it was, it was when Tandon had been nominated, but it was just sort of looking at how OMB, um, you know, really was like kind of left like a little bit of like a broken agency by the Trump administration, just everything it went through the last four years, like lost a lot of people and, you know, Trump political appointees like broke every precedent in, in the book when it came to functioning at OMB and just sort of what had to happen there in order to like, you know, install new political brass and move forward and carry out the president's agenda and respond to the pandemic. And one thing I'd heard from folks who um, worked at OMB under multiple administrations and they both knew Neera Tandon and Shalanda was just that point exactly was that like the two of them are very different you know, in that like Neeratan and was sort of this like skilled political operative and Shalanda was just somebody who's really effective at like doing the job and knowing federal spending inside and out um, and knowing the nitty gritty policy sort of there. Uh, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of why they would want her installed as deputy director, but it's still very puzzling to me just Tandon's nomination in general, like right off the bat. I think, I don't know if the White House was coming from like a place where I don't know the president as a former senator thought like this is the Republican party of old or something. And he thought he could just the, it, it just never really made a lot of sense to me. I just never saw really. Yeah, the support. Lindsey Graham's the world who said, yeah, you get a chance to get your people. Right. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, well, so a couple of things. One is I, I briefly worked with Shalanda when we were both at House Appropriations. She was in her, her first subcommittee she had was she was working for Price on Homeland and then they brought her over to Ledge um, to be the clerk there to get her started on the track. And she was just a force of nature as a staffer right from the get-go. Like I've never seen someone more capable to be like, be like that person is going to be staff director of House Appropriations. Like it was just like, it was like crystal clear from you know the way, way way she worked and the way she operated and the way she could just get people to do stuff and she's like perfect for a deputy director at OMB like ideal right and this is exactly what Obama administration did too because Rob Neighbors went over there right in 09 from the same role from that staff director house appropriations and you know he had similar history where they had been sort of briefly at OMB before and come over to the hill and and he went back and it all makes sense I. I must say, like when when they said, you know, Tannen wasn't going to make it and Shalanda might get the the top job. I was like, one, I was super excited because if you saw in her testimony, in the hearing in the Senate, like she thinks about the legislative branch. Um, and that's that's like an awesome thing to have someone at OMB when they're, you know, Paul was asking about earmarks and she's just like, it's your job to decide how to appropriate stuff. Of course, you can do earmark, you know, and uh, and that's great. Having someone who has sort of a legislative branch perspective, even if they're going over the administration is awesome. But I must say, I did have some pause because I was like, man, the top OMB job is like a monster, like political right. job. Um, and so I was like, this is like a big jump for staff director of approach, because I do have that basic sense that the deputy job is like the staff director of approach job. Right. And if you're good at the staff director approach jobs, you're going to be good at the deputy director job over there. But like the OMB director job does feel more like picking sort of a former principal from somewhere, right? Like Orzag at CBO or something like that. And I have no doubt Shalanda can be great at this job, but I can also see why the White House might be hesitant because um, that's a big jump um, from how, you know, House staffer over to director of OMB. Um, and so, I mean, I hope she makes it because she will be awesome. And I've, I've never seen a more like capable, powerful staffer at House Appropriations than her, so it'll be great. But, uh, you know, hopefully she'll have an overwhelming vote for deputy and, and she'll get in there as acting and they'll just push her through. So totally. Yeah. I think she's on track at least to get a big bipartisan showing and who knows she could end up there and they could definitely install her as acting while they, you know, pursue, I don't know any of these other names that are sort of floating around like Anna Leary or 
Gene Sperling or what Gene Sperling, right? <laughs> I don't know. Does the concept of retread come around when you talk to Gene Sperling? What's Larry Summers doing these days? Bring him right. back to the White House too. It's like, is, can we get the clown car down here? Can we bring some people back? So, but I mean, am I right that the, the executive branch is pretty hamstrung right now with dealing with the legislative branch because they don't have OMB really functioning? I mean, the last class I talked to, and I had a class last week, um, I asked them, the folks in there, have you had pass back yet? I mean, have you actually really started the budget process? And every one of them said, no, we haven't had pass back yet. I mean, pass back normally happens at Thanksgiving. Um, and, and we're on slate, not only not to have it by St. Patty's Day, but hell, we may not have it by Easter. Which is right. crazy. Yeah, and the story I was referencing, not to keep plugging my own story, but- No, please um, do. <laughs> no, please do, always plug your own story. Yeah, plug away. Yeah that a lot of that was um you know obviously there were huge delays during the transition uh the trump administration like at the office of management and budget you know i think russ Foats' last prerogative was to not allow access to some of the basic stuff that like folks at omb need to even just pull like the budget together uh just in terms of like analysis or you know what have you they shared a lot of stuff in fairness um you know under the trump administration omb was always pushing back and sending statements about you know just how transparent and whatever they were being with the biden administration but there was also like a lot of key uh roadblocks that once again broke precedent and not only that but i mean you're starting already with an agency where a lot of people have left a lot of people um, uh, feel have felt, you know, demoralized in their job. Um, you know, Trump administration took away um, essentially uh, career protections for you know senior like career staffers. There, they took away a lot of their authority when it came to you know spending decisions and apportionment, yeah, the apportionment and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, and I mean the Biden administration had to come in restore all of that, and they definitely made a number of political hires from places like the Center for American Progress or pulling from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. But yeah, they they still lack that top political brass, and you know that that's a problem, especially when you know we're about to pass this huge piece of legislation uh, that OMB is going to have a huge hand in. Ensuring all of that, you know, gets out effectively, um, you know, and, and you're still sort of hiring like the top top rung there and Neera Tandon's nomination was just such a messy like setback and everybody's waiting for the president's budget, which is going to be super delayed because you just mentioned like passback obviously hasn't happened yet. So, yeah, it, it's not an ideal um, way to sort of start OMB off, you know, especially Tandon's nomination falling apart, I think was the last thing that they wanted. And I guess they didn't actually expect that despite some people who like you know have speculated like oh did they know she was going to be like the sacrificial nomination lamb I think they they thought she would make it they thought she would get through missed it by that much yeah um, <laughs> I, I like, so, like all, all that said like it's the first year of an administration the budget's going to be late anyway and Yes, there's been a mess of problems and this is not ideal, but I'm not sure it's any like further behind the eight ball than the beginning of the Trump administration when you have a totally sort of novice White House and then Mulvaney going over to OMB who like, God bless him. But like, I don't think that man was qualified to direct OMB. And so, I I mean, it's 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 not a great situation now, but I think it's it's totally survivable, assuming they write the ship shortly. Right. And get on track. Yeah. And it's not right. like, I mean, obviously the president's budget is just sort of a, a request. It's not like everybody's like, oh no, what's going to happen if the budget is super late? Um, it's, it's nothing like that. But it, yeah, I mean, certainly like delays aren't ideal, you know, especially yeah. when you need your agency on like good footing to sort of kick off your response to the current like health and economic crisis, you know? Yep. If I remember correctly, Trump, the Trump White House actually held up that at least this time we have an appropriations for 2021 right four years ago for fy 17 we didn't actually have the appropriations bills done because trump said no i want to have a chance to to impact them and then in april sent down this list of cuts um yeah, which I mean, not, that congress yeah. not only ignored 
but actually added more money back than what was originally yeah. the accounts he was trying to cut from. But we didn't get budget for 2017 FY17 until May. Right. And we, we never got problem. And I think, and, that, and that, that's a bigger problem than it appears too, because the Trump budgets were so out of touch with the Hill. Now, lots of presidents' budgets get sort of disregarded on the Hill, but when they're so out of touch that they can't even really be used as the basis of justifications for the spending. Right. Like if you're looking for a 20% cut somewhere, like that staffer at House Appropriations has nowhere to start in your CJ documents. Like it's not even worth looking, like what, what's the point of looking at them if you're just surveying things that aren't even in within 25% of the ballpark of what you're actually going to appropriate. It's not helping you discover anything about particular programs or things like that. Um, and so a sort of realistic president's budget, even if it's not really ultimately determinative of what's going to happen on the Hill is kind of a crucial piece of the puzzle for those poor staffers who have to try and put these numbers together because they're just going to be lost in the dark. If you get another budget, this is not even sane relative to like reality on the Hill. Right. Yeah, and I agree. Year, and this year, the Hill is adrift as far as the appropriations going forward. Right. We're no longer, no longer under the Budget Control Act caps. Right. right. They can it's do any number they want. It's definitely a new era. Um, actually, there's reporting today, though, from, I think, Bloomberg first, and then uh, my coworker, Connor O'Brien, who covers defense, um, confirmed yeah, we've got it. Connor on before. Yeah, Connor's the best. He's I really rely on him. Like while I cover the budget and appropriates, I pretty much leave like defense appropriations mostly to him oh, just yeah. because he's so like effective at it and you know is way more tied into um what's going on with stuff like that. That's how the Ukraine aid scandal broke actually. Was Connor got a tip which I helped confirm, but that was like Connor's tip. And it was just wow. like something he'd heard from like a lobbyist. And I was like, I don't know what this pot of money's for. <laughs> it's like, I'll just figure it out. And then it turned into this huge thing. But Connor, anyway, is great and confirms that um, it seems like Biden will be pursuing at least a flat budget for the Pentagon, at least initially. But yeah, I mean, it's a whole new sort of brave post-budget caps world with fiscal 2022. And now obviously um, with COVID relief, we've seen a lot of, sort of pushing and pulling between progressives and centrists who, you know, want to cut defense spending and they don't want to cut defense spending. And it, it's, I think it's going to be more difficult than, I don't know, uh, people have maybe haven't devoted a lot of headspace to that yet, just because we're just getting through this like coronavirus relief package, but uh, just negotiating like top, top, top line levels that, you know, everybody in the democratic party can agree to, I think will probably be a really interesting process. And they have like, they have like every incentive to do it because if they don't get a budget resolution, they don't get a reconciliation bill. And right. so like, it's kind of linked. It's like, you're going to have to cut a deal on the 302A, um, at least on the 302A. You can fight it about, you can fight out, out at the committees about the 302Bs. But if you want the reconciliation bill, you're going to have to cut a spending, a spending limit deal in the budget resolution, which is cool for me. Like, I, I mean, I staffed appropriations. I hate the budget committee and the entire budget process. But I'm <laughs> glad as long as we're going to have it, like I, you know, and they might as well do something with this year they've got. And so, yeah, no, I, I this is a fight that I, I agree with you is very much under the radar because we're, we're talking about a lot of different policy areas right now. Um, but we're not really talking in the general drift of politics. They're not talking about the 22 appropriations. Um, and you can have a big fight because again, this is a situation where both part, you know, both chambers controlled by the Democrats put a huge gap between the median Democrat in the House, which is, you know, roughly where policy is going to land over there, and sort of the swing vote in the Senate. It's just a huge ideological gap. I'm going to yeah. quibble with you that the Democrats control the Senate. They don't when it comes to appropriations, because that's not a 51 vote. That, that's filibusterable. Yeah. Um, that you need 60. Uh, for appropriations. So you're actually way farther to the right if you think about who the 10th most uh, moderate Republican is. I mean, are we, are we in Richard Burr territory? I mean, I don't even know where we are. Um, I think you're to the right of Burr. Um, to the right of Burr? I think you're probably um, to the right of Burr's got it. Yeah, probably to the right of Burr. I, I think, you know, in some ways it, it, it kind of solves Pelosi's dilemma in, in a way that it hurt like Boehner, right? Like, or, or Ryan, is that the house is going to pass what's so going to pass and the Senate's going to cut a deal. And then the house is going to have to eat it. And I think the progressives will have to go quieter under Pelosi than say the freedom caucus went under Boehner and Ryan. Like the, the coalition that votes for the appropriations omnibus in the house 
should be that coalition of centrists with, you know, 50 Democrats dissenting and 125 Republicans dissenting or whatever. But I think it's less Democrats dissenting than it was Republicans dissenting and just pulling the noose not quite as tight on the leadership when they have to put that on the floor and lose a ton of votes in their own party. Right. Let's segue into the, the thing that could help. Yeah. Right? <laughs> what could really help leadership in this? Let's think. What, what, what could they possibly use, Caitlin? Well, everybody's talking about earmarks. Oh. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I think it really does make a lot of sense. I mean, obviously you're dealing with, um, like last year there was discussion about, you know, should we bring them back? Or like our House Democrats gonna try and bring them back. Um, they ultimately just like decided not to. But at the time we did a story about how like frontliners in the house were pissed off about the whole effort and they were afraid it was going to be used against them and attack ads and there was just a lot of general like hand wringing over it um so obviously like the ma the majority in the house is smaller um but there then there's like still some complaining but a lot of republicans want earmarks back too and i think like yeah that that is your path forward sort of for agreement in the senate if you know you're you're going to get this done and i think notably like the senate still hasn't announced um senate democrats still haven't announced their plan to bring the earmarks back like rosa deloro announced a plan but the senate's still kind of doing its own thing so the big question i think is is do senate republicans go along with this and so far i would lean toward yeah i mean it sounds like a little bit like mcconnell's just kind of gonna let like shelby like do his thing and advise people on that issue as you will but I mean, Shelby wants them back. You know what I and, mean? And, <laughs> and McConnell's a former appropriator who understands the power. Right. I mean, he totally understands he, the power. And he never believed in the earmark ban to begin with. Now, obviously, you could say a different scenario, but it's not like McConnell, I mean, who knows about McConnell's principles, right? But it's not like McConnell was ever sort of a proponent of this ban. Right. And we're dealing with um, a lot of new guardrails here, you know, that could possibly ameliorate, like, placate some of those concerns. Um, I think like the House Freedom Caucus or House Republicans are supposed to vote on this issue somewhat soon. Like I think this week there was there was a meeting um, maybe Monday yeah. night, uh, like a two hour meeting where House Republicans just kind of talked about this. And I think they're expected to vote on it soon. Like McCarthy has been noticeably really quiet saying, you know, he just does, he was doesn't want to um, like influence anyway in which this is going, but the guardrails that... appropriator, right? I don't think right. it's appropriations. But I think Please everybody do. realizes, you know, this is this is uh, an important discussion to have, and some of the guardrails that have been proposed so far, you know, are really worth looking at in terms of um, limiting the number of, you know, I think they House Democrats want to rebrand it as like funding for quote unquote community projects, right? And you know they want to limit the amount the amount of projects to up to like ten per member, and there's like no guarantee you get all ten funded. And I think it would probably be more limited to certain pots of money, and you have to post things online, and you can't financially benefit, and your family can't financially benefit. So there's like a lot of you know impetus toward bringing this back. But the big question is is do Republicans get on board at this point? That's right. So also, I, I also wonder how effective the earmarks will be at buying votes. Now, I think they will help. I, there's no doubt they'll help. But I don't think this is like a return to the heyday where you could easily buy up votes with local district projects. I, the, the days where you could win your house district by running 15 points ahead of your party's candidate for president because you're so popular among people of the other party in the district, this is gone. Like nobody's, almost nobody's doing that anymore, right? Like Don Bacon can do that a little bit in Nebraska and Peterson's gone, right? And Manchin can do it in West Virginia and Tester a little bit, but like, it's not clear to me that a couple parks and highway fixes in your district is gonna turn people from the, voters from the other party onto you to save you from sort of just base partisanship in the district. Now, I, I, I think it'll help, but I, I, I don't think it'll help as much as it used to. And I think they're going to find the leaders are going to find a nasty problem when they try to use it to, to buy up votes that they used to be able to buy up votes with it, because I think it'll be less effective. Well, especially if they're limiting as much as you're talking about. Yeah. I, mean, I remember, you know, I, I used to work for an appropriator. So, you know, 12 different bills. We try to get in ledge branch. Nobody cared about ledge branch. But we'd have two earmarks a bill. Yeah. That's, I, I, that's, Let's put some special project at the Library of Congress to place a, 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 a 
federal depository somewhere. <laughs> well, Gra- Grassley, <laughs> I'll t- I'll, let me tell you a funny story about that. Yeah. Grassley in, I guess it would be the 10 bill, figured out how to get a flow of earmarks going in the ledge branch bill. And it was by having Library of Congress do stuff with local libraries in the district. And it was seen by us as deadly dangerous, deadly dangerous. Cause we want to, we want earmarks in that bill because that was right at the height of the earmark thing. We're like, there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds yep. of earmarks in every bill. And we were like, we don't want to get involved in that game at all. And we couldn't stop Grassley. It was too powerful. So we had to put this Grassley earmark in the bill in 10. And it was like a, it was like a signpost of how to use the ledge bill to bend money towards your district. And uh, we were sort of thankful for the earmark ban for that because it kept us from having to get into that game. But I interrupted you, Mark. Go ahead. No, no, no. I think that's exactly right. But we used to try to, you know, we'd give a list of 10 different projects we wanted in each bill. And we expected to get maybe the top three in each right. bill. Right. And so we expected to get 30 to 35 earmarks as an appropriator, minority party appropriator. Uh, and now we're talking about limiting it to 10 per member. Um, I mean, the leadership... What was interesting was we started to have this kind of um, of, of, of transparency um, right when they were going away, right? Every, every earmark had to be owned by the member on their website. Um, everyone they asked for, not necessarily everyone they got, they, they, they couldn't benefit their families, right? Um, and, and as one of my former colleagues likes to say, or I guess maybe this is a Kristen thing, um, every member was happy that's everything they asked they for. love they love that database transparency was a wonderful thing for them but what i was fascinated by was over time because i'd left the hill by then that if that had gone on for three or four years and unfortunately it only lasted for like one or two the government groups are going to start keeping score right and you're going to see which members actually got something and which members didn't and based on the number of things they asked for how many you got and you'd start to be understand the formulas of how leadership used this to help the members in marginal districts. That was what it was really best for, right? And as Matt says, you could buy votes that way if you're using it for marginal districts. But if it's a a set cap limit of 10 for every member and no more than X number of dollars for a member, it's not going to happen. When I worked in the New York State Senate, they had an institutionalized earmarking system that was just beyond belief. You couldn't really use it to buy votes because they were called member items. And every member got a dollar figure. It was like literally like just like a pool of money that you could then push into projects in your district, which was like nice for the members from like a sort of re-election campaigning. I guess, well, I'm just going to blast these three projects in my district. But like it just became not a tool of leadership because everybody got them and everyone had the same cap of money. And, and it's like it's weird to see the house kind of ambling vaguely towards something like that where everyone's going to get some projects, but you're not going to be able to use them as a ton of leverage. I, the other thing about the earmarks at the end of the line in 2010 was that people were really starting to resent the appropriations committee. Um, and that I, I was, I've always been in favor of remarks, but that concerned me a lot because we had closed the rules down. So there were no amendments in the appropriations bills and there was a lot of animosity. Um, the fiscal crisis had just happened and like flake had just gotten on the appropriations committee and was like an anti appropriator on the committee. And people were really angry at the appropriations committee and how much power they were controlling over the earmarks. And so getting some good guidelines onto this and, and, and making sure the earmarks get spread around a little bit um, can keep some of the sort of animosity down, I think, because there were sort of like the members parading about how bad earmarks are, but there were a lot more members like angry internally that they weren't getting part of the game because the appropriators had way too much control over the process. And I think that there's even some, maybe not animosity is too strong a word, but there's definitely maybe some consternation among like newer members that, um, you know, they just feel uh, like the appropriations process is, is somewhat of a black box. Like they, uh, it does seem like, I mean, every single person who ran to be a probes chair, Deloro, Wasserman Schultz and um, Captor, you know, all made a point of saying like, we're gonna make sure like everybody's educated on this process. And, you know, Wasserman Schultz was always sort of pushing like how much she's been a mentor to other members who wanna know about how this works. And, you know, I think even like a few years ago, again, I've only been on this beat for two years, but it really surprised me a couple of years ago um, when uh, Yarmouth was putting that uh, sort of budget deal on the floor and it fell apart amid progressive, like, you know, anger over the defense top line or whatever it was. And then they just ended up deeming like the numbers anyway. I, it really like at the time I was like, oh, wow. I don't think, 
um, you know, like Ro Khanna knew that they would just deem the numbers anyway. Like in just talking to members like around, I was like, I'm not sure everybody has like a full understanding of how this process works. And, um, you know, possibly like funding for quote unquote community projects will, will help encourage that. You know, if you, can, if you can both bring something home and feel like you have more purchase in the whole entire process, maybe that's good for everybody. And I think it's interesting, like given how much like Lisa Murkowski lately has been talking about what Alaska needs in sort of meeting with Tandon and keeping everybody like, you know, on their toes in terms of what she was going to do there. And then it was, you know, is she going to vote for COVID relief? Because she kept saying cryptic things about how people in Alaska need help. Well, it's like, I don't, maybe this is, you know, this is good for everybody involved. I, I don't know, you know? So, so Matt, what was the last bill that went through under normal order? <laughs> it's my bill. It was the FY 2010 ledge bill, and which someone pointed out to me the other day, passed on October 1st, 2009, um, which, technically would be then a lapse of appropriations at some point. I always claim that was the last one that made it under regular order through the deadline. But someone pointed out that the date on LIS is October 1st, 2009, which is ridiculous because I know we passed it on September 30th on purpose. So that would pass in time because it contained the CR in it, right? The, it was, the CR was attached to the bill. Um, that might have been when and, it was signed in the law. Yeah. But again, I, I, yeah, but again, I don't remember anyone ever saying there's a lapse of appropriations, but evidently it might not have been signed till the next day, but yeah, no, I've done. And that was like right under the wire, man. Like that was like, we didn't know we were going to go until like two days before that. And then we went and then that's it, man. A decade later, no, no, <laughs> no bills, no bills made so, it on its own. So one of the reasons I wanted to ask you is because only 39 of the current senators were serving at that time, actually not even if, sorry, 38 of the current senators were serving at that time. Yeah. And it's so much worse in the House. Yeah. At Nobody that point, only 123 of the current members of the House <laughs> of Representatives were serving. So, Caitlin, when you talk about they're not, they don't know what it, how the process works, it's because they weren't here the last time it worked. But 300 right. members were not here the last time the appropriations process sent a bill through on time. Regular order. I mean, I mean, they're not even they gave up on even anything resembling regular order in the last four years, right? They're, they're doing the CRs preemptively by two or three weeks in September now. Right, in the middle of and September, they're not, they're and, doing the CRs. And, and like, you know, sometimes I tell students, well, we have 12 approach bills, but we could have a, we could do each agency separately, but there's reasons to package them because you want to, you know, you don't want people to vote on each individual agency. They don't vote them down, things like that, or the president's going to veto an agency. But like, Yes, we have 12 bills now, but really the way it's going with these minibuses, we really have at best like three or four bills, um, if not just the one giant consolidated omnibus. And so, I, you know, even that, though, would be something akin to regular order if those bills went through a process that included things like Senate markups. But they're not even doing that at this point. Um, and so there's have so many ever, dimensions. Caitlin, have you actually seen a Senate markup yet? In your two years? <laughs> I have. They're not this past summer, but didn't they have markups in... I feel like they had markups they in 2019. Had a of markups two years yeah. ago. Yeah. I think yeah. there were markups in 2019, but you know, obviously, um, with this last round, no, the Senate just never, never even, never even tried. <laughs> It'd be fascinating to see if they do it this year or not. Yeah, yeah. I think it I definitely know. will be. But I, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, certainly Deloro, at least on the earmark front, um, is supposed to brief members uh, on. Wednesday, which is um, tomorrow at this recording, she already sent out a dear colleague letter sort of explaining like everything that you know you need to do as a member if you want to request funding for XYZ, here's where you put it, here's what you have to do, you post it online, whatever. So I mean, I, I'm not, I don't mean to like throw members under the bus and say like, oh no, I know more about like the appropriations process than members of Congress, but you know, that is obviously my beat. And in talking to a lot of them, I'm like, I don't- Definitely really, do the more you know than I mean? the other staff. <laughs> I'll say, yeah, Caitlin, like, you know more about the approach process than a, a good ton of the members. Like, they don't, and, I mean, and definitely, yeah. and some of their staff, which is the more important part. There's a need and a want, you know, for more education there and involvement. I think everybody wants to feel like they have some purchase there, and and maybe that'll kind of cut down on, you know, various I, I do think, rumblings that throw wrenches into the works. I think yeah. one bad incentive is I don't think the leadership has a lot of incentive to educate the members on appropriations. I think the leadership is just as, just as happy for members to be completely in dark on the budget approach rules and just <laughs> have to come to them to be sort of spoon fed the answers. I think the leaders love that. Um, yeah. The last thing they need is people running around the Senate 
starting to work the rules, right? Like no way. Um, and so that's, that, that's tough because even if you're a young member and you want to get educated on this stuff and you want to get up to speed on using sort of like the leverage you might have under the rules, then no one's going to help you as above you. They have no incentive to like want that going on uh, in the House or the Senate. Um, I'm guessing we're pretty deep into time right now. Yeah, we probably should cut it off. The last person stopped listening like a minute and a half like ago, probably. 15 minutes ago, although we're having a great time. Uh, Kay, I really appreciate it. Yes. Um, you have any closing comments you want to give us? Anything you want to, to, to pitch that you're, you're working on go, looking into the future? Uh, no, I just think it's going to be a really fascinating year to watch under a new administration. You know, we obviously just got through this first reconcil reconciliation process. We might be seeing a second reconciliation process. We have, you know, a brand new world post-budget caps to look at. The debt ceiling has to be raised by this summer. Um, first, have we, have we breached it yet? I can't remember what the date is. Is it May, March 15th? It's, it's like the end of July or something like that. The but, budget but, deal two years ago, I think, raised it to July 31st or Oh, something. they took it to July? Okay. Yeah, but obviously that's always a fun exercise in, um, you know, brinksmanship so it's a big budget year it's a really big budget year for democrats and the president and it's just going to be really interesting to see what happens moving forward matt you got any uh no i well i my closing shot would just be that i noticed the house was under martial law and has been since the beginning of congress today which is i mean that for our listeners who don't know martial there's a one-day layover requirement for special rules so that you can't just change the rules on the fly um and the house usually waives that by special rule uh, that has a one-day layover near the end of a Congress when they need to move stuff quickly. And in HRS 8, the House Rules Package this year, they put it in for January because there were some things in January they might thought they want to do quick. Um, and they've left it and they've extended it twice, first into February and now into March 12th. And I noticed this because they're putting the rule on the floor, like basically right now about the COVID bill. Um, and the rule just came out of the Rules Committee like 10 minutes ago. Um, and so uh, they do not have any sort of layover requirements, which is one of the classic procedural protections that you're not going to get special rules sprung on you in the house, but uh, looks like we may have sort of like permanent martial law in the house, at least right now going forward in the 117. Yeah, Mark, the, you anything the, to close with? Yeah, no, the closer the, the divisions come, the more uh, draconian the measures are. Um, I just want to, again, thank Caitlin Emma for being willing to give us her time today. Again, everybody who's listening, go to Politico and, and make sure you're watching her stuff and go ahead and, uh, get on to her Twitter and watch what's going on. She's an excellent reporter, keeping track of what's going on. Um, and we look forward to catching you again. We hope to run another one of these in about two to three weeks. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dylan. Mm -hmm.